Section 1 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 10, October 1899. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Piotr Natter. Life on a Yukon Trail by Alfred Pierce Dennis. The Stikin River is the chief feature of the hydrography of northern British Columbia. The waters of this stream mingle with the Pacific near Fort Wrangell, Alaska. About 2,000 miles further around the big Alaskan peninsula, the waters of the majestic Yukon pour into Bering Sea. These rivers, 2,000 miles apart at their mouths, are less than 200 miles apart at the nearest point of their headwaters. As the sticking is open to free navigation by treaty with the United States, it was proposed by the Canadian authorities, when the Klondike excitement was at its height, to build a narrow-gauge railway from Glenora, the head of navigation on the Stikin, to Teslin Lake, one of the principal sources and feeders of the Yukon. It was claimed that with the completion of the railway, a passenger could go through from Vancouver to Dawson in fifteen days, with no greater inconvenience than the labor involved in stepping from the river steamer to the train. It was hopefully predicted that, with the opening of the route, the bulk of Klondike travel would be diverted from the American ports of Dai, Skagway, and St. Michael, and the volume of outfitting trade transferred from Seattle to Vancouver and Victoria. After four months of preliminary survey work for the proposed railway, the project was, in June 1898, abandoned. A number of causes contributed to the collapse of the enterprise. First, the waning of the Klondike excitement. Second, the failure of the Dominion Senate to ratify a heavy subsidy granted the road by the Canadian Assembly. And third, the energy in execution displayed by American capitalists in pushing the enterprise of a road to Lake Bennett via the White Pass. Scarcely too much could be said for the all-Canadian route as a potentiality, but as an actuality, in the undeveloped graces of early infancy, it justly earned the reputation of being the most arduous and difficult of all the so-called practicable trails to the Yukon goldfields. Compelled by ill health to suspend for two years all work requiring mental stress, the writer became tolerably familiar in the mountains of southern British Columbia with the actual requirements of various rough manual employments and the actual character of various rough folk of the mines and logging camps. It was a desire to add to these experiences with rough jobs and rough people that led him to apply for a subordinate position on the exploration and survey party dispatched in the winter of 1898 to the northern wilderness in the interest of the all-Canadian route to the Yukon. Our party of thirteen men took steerage passage in February from Vancouver, B.C. to Fort Wrangler, Alaska, in a battered old Chinese freighter, the Amur. From this point we crossed on open water to Cottonwood Island, at the mouth of the Stikin River. It was the purpose of the party to move up the river for 150 miles over the ice to Telegraph Creek. From this point we were to strike northward into the interior, for the purpose of running preliminary service 140 miles to Teslin Lake, one of the principal sources and the head of navigation of the Yukon. 
Camped on the ice and dirty snow at the mouth of the Stikin was a motley crew of not less than 1,000 men who had been diverted from the accustomed routes to the Klondike by false reports about the opening of this new route. They had been informed that a serviceable trail connected Telegraph Creek with Teslin Lake. Many, too, had visions of town sites along the proposed railway and hoped to get in on the ground floor. They were sadly misled. The information was false, and the major portion of the wayfarers, after months of struggle, were utterly baffled in the attempt to thread their way through a remorseless wilderness of mountain and swamp to Teslin Lake. We were better equipped for making an expeditious journey up the river, and soon the bulk of these fortune-seekers were left far in our rear. Our outfit consisted of a four-month's supply of bacon, beans, flour, baking powder, provender for the horses, and the usual camp impedimenta of tents and blankets. The entire outfit weighed about four tons. We camped on four feet of soft snow and waited for the rain to cease in order to get out of the mild coast belt and proceed over the snow up the river. The few days of waiting on the island were enlivened by sights and incidents of some contemporaneous human interest. The place seemed to be a reservation for the exhibition of many amusing features of human crankery. All sorts of business ventures, more or less quixotic, were in evidence, from the saloon-keeper, who intended to haul a barrel of whiskey up the river on a hand-sled, to the man who was taking along a sixty-foot steamboat in sections for launching on Teslin Lake. One of the most extraordinary manifestations of genius for impracticabilities was Captain Armstrong's snow train. This was nothing less than a steam locomotive on runners, designed to draw heavily loaded vans of freight for three hundred miles over the surface of the snow by means of a windlass and steel wire cable carried ahead to anchorage. The snow train was hauled after incredible exertion eight miles up the river, and there abandoned. During the early stages of the river journey, we ordinarily made the morning start between midnight and two o'clock a.m., in order to get the advantage of an unbroken crust. It was dreary work, plodding on by the creaking sledges several hours before daylight, the heavy snow of the broad river stretching out uninvitingly in the gloom before us like some grey morass. It was pleasant to think at these times that the whirling earth was bringing the genial sun flying across the continent, pleasant to think of Washington fully awake, of Chicago staring uneasily in the sunrise of a new day. As our turn comes, the forms of the giant peaks to the east gain details and color in the gray pallor of the dawn. Soon the crests stand forth rosy against the pale pink skyline, and tidings of coming day are flushed to the dark green spruce forests that lie in shadow on the river's brink. With the sun fully above the mountain crests, the glare in the valley becomes painful. The snowy expanse of the river and its mountain walls glitters and scintillates with cruel brilliancy. Everyone becomes more or less affected with snow blindness, and complexions deepen into the hue and finish of red earthenware crockery. The writer's sleeping companion, John, the cook, introduced the device of daily blacking his face with soot from a charred faggot. It helped, he said, to soften the intolerable glare. 
traces of these applications were visible upon a more or less wrinkled and pachydermatous face many weeks later about the middle of march we crossed the alaskan boundary forty miles up the river and two miles beyond passed the dead body of a man wrapped in canvas and strapped to a tree near the river's brink hard by stood a hand sled and its empty harness the gaunt stark figure and the motionless sled in the silent white desert told the brief story of the hope that had braved the wilderness and of the quest that had failed we bivouacked nightly under the stars on the ice of the river there was no unpacking of tents or removal of clothing the tired men stretched themselves in couples upon a layer of blankets over which were drawn more blankets and a tarpaulin and were soon sunk in stentorous slumber there were those in the party who could not sleep more than half the night while lying out on account of the cold to crawl forth in the dead of the night from a heap of blankets in a semi-torpid condition for the purpose of thawing out by a painfully kindled fire was austerely sombre work about fifty miles up the river the base of a great glacier was skirted whose jagged billows of bluish ice silhouetted against a cloudless skyline had been a sort of pillar of cloud by day for many weary miles of travel the bunching of the boulders on the beaches and the plainly defined scratchings on the grim faces of the deeply serrated ridges testify to the sliding of a great ice sheet in the remote ages of the past the present-day glaciers the lineal scions of this ice mantle lie anchored in splendid isolation upon the flanks of the lofty mountains that hem in the river the course of the river through two hundred miles of cross ranges that might not be inaptly termed the cordilleras of north america is coniferous and turbulent circumventing barriers by abrupt bends about ninety-five miles upstream the pent-up current boils through a gloomy canyon not one hundred feet in width but ordinarily the stream flows composedly to the sea between banks that are anywhere from three hundred to three thousand feet apart the heaviest snow encountered on the river was in the forty-mile stretch between fifty-five-mile camp and the canyon the snow lay in great wind-driven dunes from bank to bank often concealing thin ice the ice varied from a few inches to four feet in thickness at short intervals steel-pointed picket rods were thrust through the snow in advance of our heavy sledges and the distance was covered in safety many outfits were lost through the ice in this stretch and six cases of death by drowning came to our notice our outfit was well in advance of the bulk of the movement up the stikin some light dog teams had passed up the river a few days before and the snow compacted by these sleds would ordinarily sustain the weight of our horses the trail was a succession of heavy ruts and furrows it was impossible for the horses to step to the snow on either side of the beaten track the crust yielded even to the light cayuses or indian ponies and they floundered helplessly until lifted bodily back again to the trail we struggled toilsomely through morasses of soft snow tugging and heaving on the heavy sledges while the teamsters urged on the discouraged horses one sunday after making derricks of ourselves for half the day in our efforts to get the horses through heavy drifts 
we hit upon the plan of drawing the beasts to a place of security on the sledges. The horses were accordingly detached, the loaded sledge drawn ahead, and the baggage removed. We then returned, and binding a worn-out horse securely to the top of the sledge, every man in the party laid hold of the tow-rope and tugged the beast up the river to where the stores had been deposited. Most of the men who had come thus far with horses had gone into camp on the river's bank in order to save the lives of their beasts. Little pools of blood along the trail marked the points where tired animals, cut by the crust, had been halted for a rest. The gaunt and wasted carcasses of dead horses and dogs by the wayside told the story of overwork and of exhausted food supplies. On Tuesday, March 28, after three weeks of travel on the river, we rounded a bend of the stream and beheld Glenora. From Fort Wrangell to this point, no settled human habitation had met the eye. Now we perceived that Colbreth's log-trading cabin and a dozen Indian shacks perched squat-like on a low margin of river bank formed the settlement that made so brave a showing upon the maps of that region. Two months later, the Indian shacks had been turned into hotels, and fifteen saloons were doing a lively business. A local weekly newspaper was being hawked through the streets at twenty-five cents a copy. Outfits were piled twenty feet high along the river front, and two thousand white men lay camped behind this rampart of provisions. It was dark when we reached Telegraph Creek, our destination twelve miles further upstream. Great hills rose sheer in rocky escarpments from the river, and there was no spot for a camping place on the small segments of soil at their base. There were no poles on which to raise our tents, no boughs on which to spread our blankets, no fuel for cooking the evening meal. We had labored unceasingly for eighteen hours that day. Everyone was tired and ill-humored. Blankets were unrolled in the dirty snow, and all sought repose. All but Dan, the axeman, and John, the cook. They visited an impoverished saloon that night, purchased Hudson's Bay Company rum, made acquaintances freely, and by morning had a considerable clientele among the Indians. Telegraph Creek is an old trading center of the Hudson's Bay Company with the Talton Indians. A small creek pours through the rocky defiles of the mountains into the Stikin at this point. There is not a telegraph line in 1,000 miles. The name, however, recalls the enterprise of connecting the old world with the new by a cable across the Bering Sea. Work was actually begun on stringing the overland wire through this region, and great coils of rust-eaten wire still lie on the banks of the Stikin, precisely where they were dropped when the successful laying of the Atlantic cable killed the Western project. The Taltan Indians about Telegraph Creek speak Chinook and understand some of the most ordinary English words or speech of Boston men. The rich and aristocratic, whose fortunes were laid in the packing industry twenty years before, in the days of the old Cassiar gold excitement, live in comfortable log rancheries near the water's edge. The unthrifty, owning neither cabins nor ponies, live back in the brush in wickiups or hovels of poverty. Social lines are strictly drawn. The ownership of a log cabin marks class division. Another batch of distinction lay in possession of gaily beribboned straw hats. 
These hats had been taken into the country the previous autumn by the Hudson's Bay Company. Any young buck who aspired to be anything at all contrived to wear a straw hat last winter. Preference ran to Princeton colors. The Kluches, or women of the tribe, had a passion for gay-colored dress and were especially fond of dancing. The family life of the Taltans is of a low order. These people have not emerged from a state of polyandry. Paternity being a matter of doubt, and maternity a matter of fact, the tracing of relationship among them is confined rather closely to the female line. Of course this has a direct influence upon property rights. Among Indians of the same tribe of the Taltan River, the institution of Mutterrecht, or mother-law, is clearly defined. The children of a marriage belong to the mother's family. It is said that in rare cases a child is transferred to the father's side of the house through formal adoption for a brief period by the father's sister. In the matter of inheritance, it is the sister's son who takes precedence over the wife of a man's natural heir, though when a man dies, his friends take over pretty much all his portable property. The wife, however, receives some compensation in the distribution of presents at the next potlatch or memorial festival at which the deceased is honored. A trace of exogamy and of marriage by capture still exists in the faint pursuit of a bride by the intended husband. The hostile demonstrations against the captor made by the friends of the bride are significant only of mock anger, being a relic of the archaic usage of hurtling real weapons in actual wrath at the retreating bridegroom. Our own civilization has advanced a step further. Rice and old slippers are thrown at bridal couples without even the affectation of wrath. One would expect from their crude ideas of marriage to find a condition of club law or of lawlessness among the Taltans. This is not true. They have scrupulous respect for rights of person and property. Of the many tons of food supply left unguarded along the trail, we did not hear of a single case of theft by hungry Indians. Prices, too, were high in the region of Telegraph Creek before the break-up of the ice and arrival of river steamboats. Flour and bacon sold for fifty cents per pound, and one ton of hay could have been sold for five hundred dollars. There is some novelty in the method by which the Taltans dispose of their dead. After the flesh has been burned from the bones on a funeral pyre, with the favorite weapons and ornaments of the deceased, they are packed in small and tin-covered trunks furnished by American traders. The trunks are then placed in neatly constructed cabins with glass windows. The cabins of the dead, perched upon Mamelus Hill, 200 feet above the river, can be seen for three miles down the stream. One little trunk, scarcely larger than a physician's medicine chest, was housed under a diminutive canvas tent. Few of the living Taltans possess glass windows in their cabins, but these luxurious accessories are furnished to the dead, whose spirits, with proverbial Indian curiosity, are supposed to be on the lookout for interesting phenomena in the village below. And since the world began, was there ever so much to thrill the imagination of those simple folk of the forest as the phenomena provided by the gold-seekers last spring? Gold-hunting has no fascination for the natives of these regions, and they have never worked the old placer grounds in the vicinity in search of it. It must have seemed to them that all white men have suddenly gone mad. 
the sudden irruption into the solitudes of a far country of hundreds of swarthy men with horses bullocks goats dogs and impedimenta by the ton amused the simple natives in much the same way as children are pleased at the antics of a menagerie of performing animals all day long the bucks wrapped in hudson's bay company blankets sat stolidly upon piles of lodge-poles on the bank absorbed in the contemplation of the busy scenes on the river they were amazed at the prodigious quantity of supplies they marvelled at the energy which had braved the snows of the river but all shook their heads discouragingly at the project of taking the heavy outfits over the mountain trail into the interior from being objects for the satisfaction of curiosity merely the strangers became objects for the gratification of avarice these untutored savages are shrewd and shylockish in their keenness after a bargain the prices the noble red men put upon their wares or their services were perfectly ridiculous ten dollars for a pair of moccasins and twenty dollars for a day's labor at packing were gravely demanded of the strangers prices were finally scaled down to a basis of one hundred and fifty dollars per ton for packing to the first summit of nine miles at this rate an indian with his pony could earn from fifteen to eighteen dollars per day the indians suffered economically as well as morally through their fondness for strong drink much bad whisky was quietly exchanged for their services our cook fixed up a decoction of lemon extract and dark water in which tea leaves had been steeped brown sugar and a dash of pepper were added to the mixture the stuff was put up in old bottles and slyly traded to the kluches in exchange for moccasins and leggings as a highly prized brand of american wine as we broke camp to begin the nine-mile climb to the first summit three of our men rolled their blankets and bade us farewell their secession was due to unpleasantness over the duties of flunky to the cook for which seven of us had been detailed we did not come into this country to act the part of scullion to a sheepherder said they so they left the party to become professional packers which is harder on one's back but not so trying to one's pride soon after this john our ingenious cook left the party as a result of a little unpleasantness with dan the axeman john had made soup of some moose bones purchased from the indians in an old lard can that calgary the teamster had used the day before as a wash boiler for his month's laundry dan would eat no soup remarking that when a man became too dirty to drive sheep he still had a chance of going in to cook on a servicor this sinister reference to john's former occupation broke the entente cordiale john secretly disposed of about two hundred dollars worth of our provisions to some gold seekers and departed for glenora to start in business as a professional poker player his place was taken by a stranded gold seeker called ben who approached the subject of cooking without any preconceived opinions or errors in experience on quitting the rivers we followed the roaring mountain torrent that threads its way from the first summit nine miles to the northward by noon of the second day we stood upon the first divide at an elevation about twenty seven hundred feet above telegraph creek village in this distance we had lifted and tugged the sledges over a succession of benches that rose a shell-wise in formidable declivities from the river 
A bitterly cold, searching wind was encountered on the summit, and we could not halt for lunch or rest. Over the divide the country gently falls off towards the valley of the Little Talton, about 16 miles to the northeast, from which low level another summit of 2,600 feet is to be surmounted in the ensuing 12 miles of trail to the Cocketsea Lakes. Just beyond the first summit we were caught in a heavy snowstorm, thick with fine, driving snow. The men who worked at the sledges to keep them on the narrow, tortuous trail could scarcely distinguish the driver who led the horse. The horses repeatedly lost footing on the beaten path and felt plunging and snorting over their withers in the dry, powdery snow to one side. As we could not push on to a suitable camping place and the horses could not remain on the narrow trail through the stormy night, the sledges were detached and the beasts sent back to the south slope of the divide. The snow lay seven feet deep over the stunted willows that grew about the little mountain stream we were following to the Talton. This stream was located and a shaft was sunk through the snow and ice to the running water. Pails of water were thrown upon the dry granulated snow in order to get a substantial flooring for a single tent. After four hours of work, seven men managed to find shelter from the storm. The draftsman, who had begun to doubt the wisdom of continuing with the party, recovered his confidence. But in this auspicious hour, our little sheet-iron stove, becoming hot, keeled over on its foundation and settled two feet in the snow. This separated the stovepipe at one of its joints, and a dense cloud of smoke filled the one's happy home. It was a case of sauve-cupeux. Everyone fled to the open air. But above the howling of the storm, an oversensitive ear might now have caught certain lurid epithets and objurgations that only an extraordinary exigency serves to invoke from the vocabulary of the habitually profane. To be continued in the November number. End of section 1